Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Page 542. And he's discussing, in the language of the Kabbalah, there are the two worlds. Our world is the world of action. Then you have the higher world is the world of Yitzira, the world of formation, which is the world of the angels. The angels are basically primarily emotional beings. Angelic emotions, the divine, sublime emotions, but spiritual emotions, powerful emotions. You have the camp of Michal, which is love. You have the camp of Gavriel, which is strength, or you have the camp of Rafael, which is mercy, compassion. Each camp has infinite amount of angels because you have all different types of love. You have this love and that love. You have infinite variations of love. So every angel embodies an energy, a certain energy of love. So this is primarily in the world of formation. And then you have the world of creation primarily is the, is the world of the souls, the souls of the tzaddikim, of the righteous ones, which have great minds. Like it says that the mind of Maimonides, Maimonides with his mind reached to the world of creation. Maimonides had such a lucid mind, such a clear mind. His sense of godliness was so crystal clear because his mind, his soul was on the level of the world of creation. So he had this penetrating understanding of godliness, this clarity. He was able to see through and he's able to, to understand godliness and to develop an emotion, a love, towards godliness based on this powerful and deep understanding. So that's the level of the world of, of creation. And based on that, the soul who does the mitzvah and does the mitzvah with intent, doesn't just do the mitzvah mechanically, dryly, but does the mitzvah with passion, with love, with joy, with enthusiasm, with an intent, with focus, with concentration. So depending on what you put into the mitzvah, that's what elevates the soul. That's the energy that elevates your soul. So if you put into the mitzvah, you, just, you didn't just do the mitzvah dryly, but you did it with your natural love to God, almost an animalistic type of love to God. Then your soul is only elevated to the world of formation, the world of the angels. Except on Shabbat. On Shabbat, you get a vacation. On Shabbat, you get an upgrade. Every soul, the souls of the world of formation, the Jewish souls, are upgraded to the world of creation. Versus the angels remain in the world of formation. They don't get any upgrades. Why do we get an upgrade? Why does the soul get an upgrade? Because the soul had to struggle. The soul had to make choices. The soul is much deeper than an angel. Angels don't have to struggle. Angels live in heaven. In heaven, everything is clear. You don't need faith. Everything is clear. A human being in this world who has to overcome, who has to struggle, who has to make a personal choice, a personal decision to do godly, to act godly, to think godly. So because of that, the soul is upgraded, at least on Shabbat and on holidays and on Rosh Chodesh, that the soul gets a, a upgrade, temporary upgrade to the higher world, the world of the Garden of Eden, the higher Garden of Eden, the world of creation. But who resides in this world permanently? These are the souls of the tzaddikim. 
the souls like Maimonides or the souls of the righteous people were the souls of those Jews who invested in their mitzvah. They really focused their mind. They focused their, their understanding. And they developed a real love to God, a real attraction to God. So that's the energy that carries their soul up to the world of the Garden of Eden. And that world, the higher level of the Garden of Eden, is pure pleasure. Because every day the soul receives a new insight into godliness. That's its reward. That's its eternal reward. Every day the soul gets a new insight. We know even in this world, whenever you have a breakthrough, you have a new idea, or something clicks in your mind for the first time, you get so excited when you figure something out, something that you haven't figured out in a long time, and suddenly it hits you and it makes sense to you, you get so excited. Pleasure. Pure pleasure. Well, imagine, this is what the soul feels and experiences every day in the Garden of Eden, in the higher level of Garden of Eden. Every day, there's a new revelation, a new stunning revelation, a new stunning insight into godliness that blows them away. And the pleasure is this pure ecstasy. It's indescribable. There's no pleasure, physical pleasure in the world that even comes close to the pure, spiritual, sublime pleasure when the soul has a new insight, a new, deeper understanding of godliness. So that's its reward, its eternal reward. So now he says, but this is only regarding to the soul. How about the mitzvot themselves? The mitzvot, the Torah and the mitzvot that we do are elevated through the intent because the mitzvah needs intent. When you do a mitzvah with intent, then the mitzvah is able to soar. The intent are like the wings. They allow the mitzvah to soar. It's the energy that carries the mitzvah. The mitzvot themselves are divine. But if you do it mechanically, begrudgingly, out of guilt, then it's, it's, it, has, it can't soar. It's flat. The mitzvah remains in this world. It doesn't, it's not elevated. But when you do a mitzvah with intent, the mitzvah has energy, the mitzvah has a soul, the mitzvah has a life, then the mitzvah is elevated. So the mitzvah is elevated depending on what energy you put into the mitzvah. If you put the emotional energy, the instinctive energy, the animalist, almost animal-like energy that we have, the instinctive nature that every Jew has uh, connection to, connected to godliness, and you do the mitzvah out of, you're motivated by your natural love to God, then it's a limited energy. Then the mitzvah are elevated to the world of formation. If you invest in the mitzvah, you focus your mind, you concentrate your mind, your whole being, then the mitzvot are elevated to the higher world, the world of creation. But the mitzvot themselves are divine, are godly. So when they're elevated to the higher world, they're elevated to the ten svirot, they're elevated to the godly, the godliness of that world. Every world at its center, at its core, is really, it's all godliness. It's the ten svirot. God manifests himself and reveals himself in that world and animates and creates that world. So God reveals himself through his ten divine emanations. So the the ten divine emanations in each and every world, there are ten divine emanations in the world of creation, there are ten divine emanations in the world of formation, there are ten divine emanations in the world of action. But these are the divine emanations. They're God's emanations. So therefore, the, the Torah mitzvot that you study become one, become part, are elevated and become one with the ten svirot, with the divine emanation of that world. Because the mitzvot themselves are godly. The soul, even the soul of a tzaddik, of a righteous one, 
the complete tzaddik, this tzaddik who, who goes into the Garden of Eden, the higher Garden of Eden, the highest level of the Garden of Eden. A soul is an entity. A soul is not divine. A soul is not God. God is not spirituality. A soul is spiritual. A soul, but a soul is not God. A soul is an entity that's separate from God, that understands God, that feels, has a feeling toward, towards godliness. But by definition, the soul is a being, is a created being. Just like God creates the material, He also creates the soul, He creates the spiritual. So the soul could sit in the Garden of Eden and enjoy the sublime pleasure and experience His divine revelation each and every day. But it doesn't become godly. It doesn't become godly. It's separate from God, but it, it, it derives pleasure from godliness. It's ecstatic from its, it's connected, it's ecstatic, but it's not God. Versus the mitzvah that you do, the Torah, that is divine. This is the divine. The mitzvah is God's will. God and His will are one. The Torah, this is God's mind. So when you study Torah, and as a result of your Torah, as a result of the energy that you put into the Torah, into the mitzvot, your mitzvot soar to heaven, the mitzvot become part of the divine. They are elevated to the ten svirot. They are absorbed. They become one in the ten svirot. That's what he's going to explain over here. Uh, the second paragraph from the bottom, page 542. All the aforesaid concerns the abode and station of the souls. Revishly the note, station is not necessarily synonymous with abode. A soul whose abode is in Yitzira may rise periodically on Shabbat and Rosh Hashanah to a temporary station in Berea, as said above. There, Torah and divine service, however, are actually absorbed in the tenth spirit, which are a manifestation of godliness with which the Ein Sof light unites in perfect unity. The Ein Sof light radiating in each world is completely unified with the spirit of that world. So God himself is infinite. God is undefined. But yet, God emanates from within Himself ten svirot, and they are inseparable from God. They are God Himself. So when the ten svirot, when the Torah and the mitzvot are elevated to the ten svirot, they become one with God. They are one with God. A soul doesn't become one with God. A soul could be connected to God, could be attached to God, could love God, could experience God, godliness, could derive pleasure, could understand, could comprehend but it doesn't become one with God. It's a separate being. So the Torah and the mitzvot become absolutely one with God because they are God. They are divine. The mitzvah is God's will. The Torah is God's mind. So they become one. There's no separation. The soul, even in the Garden of Eden, even in the highest level of the Garden of Eden, there's a separation. It's a created being. It's not God. Specifically. specifically, this means that one's Torah and divine service ascend to the tenth spirit of Berea, which generated by intellectual fear and love, and to the tenth spirit of Yetzirah when prompted by natural fear and love. Now, within them, within the spirit of Berea and Yetzirah, are clothed the tenth spirit of the world of emanation, Azilat, and they are completely unified with them. The spirit of Atzilat are clothed in and completely unified with the Tzapherit of and Yitzira. The ten Tzapherit of Atzilat are, in turn, perfectly united with their emanator, the blessed Ein Sof. It follows, then, that by ascending to the spirit of Berea and Yitzira, the soul's Torah and divine service actually unite with the Ein Sof. 
the worlds of Bria, of creation, and the world of formation are worlds. They are separate entities from God. But the ten svirot that creates the world and emanates and, and uh, animates the world, these ten svirot are united with the original ten divine emanations of the world of Atzilut. So they are godly. This is the godly core, the godly center of every world. The center of every world is its core, its godliness. It's the ten svirot. God emanates from himself the ten svirot. So you have the ten svirot of the world of creation, which channels and creates the world of creation, the entities of the world of creation, the concept of time and space, whatever it means in the world of creation. Then you go in a lower form, when the ten ten svirot creates and animates and manifests itself in the world of formation, the world of emotions, which is a lower form of life. And the the entities of the world of of formation, the, the angels and the souls, who primarily dwell in the world of uh, formation and whatever is considered time and space in that dimension, spiritual sense of time and space. And then you have in the world of action, the world of action also, its core and its essence is the world of the tenths we wrote, through which God channels and manifests and God creates and animates this world of action. But the core and the essence, the center is these tenths we wrote which are a reflection of the ten svirot of the world of formation, which are a reflection of the ten svirot of the world of creation, which are a reflection of the ten svirot, the ten divine emanations of the world of Atzilut, which is a reflection of the infinite. So God's infinite light is present and is manifest even in the lower worlds, through, via his ten svirot. So they are divine. Continue, the souls on the other hand. The souls on the other hand, in contrast with their Torah and divine service, are not absorbed into the godliness of the ten spherot, but stand instead in the chambers and abodes of Berea or Yetzira, which are the worlds of Berea and Yetzira, separate beings that are not united with Hashem, as are these spherot. As we learned earlier in chapter 35, that even the complete tzaddik, the highest level of the tzaddik, who has a perfect love, a consummate love for God, pure ecstasy, who has transformed, sublimated his ego, completely sublimated his subconscious. He's still an entity. By definition, the fact that he loves God, the highest form of love, by definition it means that there is I who love God, who loves God. So there's already a separation. It's already not God, because God is an absolute unity. So, So it's already a separate entity from God. So you don't become absorbed. The soul of the tzaddik doesn't become absorbed within God. There, the souls, the light and radiance of the Shekinah, meaning the blessed Ein Sof light as it is unified with the ten Sira of Berea or Yetzira. And this radiance that they enjoy is actually a ray of the light of their own Torah and divine service. See Zohar Parshat by Yechal, page 210. For the reward of a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. So, where does this pleasure come from? The pleasure, the reward that the soul receives, this brilliant new insight that the soul experiences every day. Where does it come from? From the mitzvah. As a result of the mitzvah, the mitzvah itself triggers something divine. The mitzvah is divine. It triggers a unification with, with the divine. When you trigger unification with the divine, with the infinite, then the reward is that, you tr- that a ray, a glimpse, a ray of it emanates into the soul. And the soul is able to enjoy this ray. So this new insight derives, comes from the mitzvah. That's what he says, the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. That the pleasure that the soul receives, the pleasure which is so 
incredible, comes from the mitzvah. And the pleasure is so indescribable, the Talmud says that a one moment in the world to come, in the Garden of Eden, is worth more than all the pleasures of this world put together. And then the Talmud says more so. It's worthwhile for a person to go through all the suffering of hell just in order to be able to experience one moment of bliss in the Garden of Eden. The sufferings of hell are indescribable. All the sufferings you can imagine in this world, the worst pain, the worst physical pain you can imagine, the worst torture, the worst pain, is nothing in comparison to one moment of hell. So the Talmud says, it's worth it for a person to go through you mean heaven? Hell. Oh, hell. It's worth it for a person to go through all the pains of purgatory of hell, not one moment of hell. Hours, days, years, decades, centuries of hell, just in order to be, become purified, to be able to achieve the lowest level of the Garden of Eden for one moment. That bliss is so indescribable. It's worthwhile to go through all this pain and suffering just in order to be able to arrive to reach heaven. Before went to the secrets of the Torah, the Pardis. And one of them, Menazai, died. And Zayma went crazy, went mad. Elisha turned into a heretic. Rabbi Akiva was the only one who entered in peace and left in peace. He walked away from the whole experience intact. He was enriched by the experience, but he remained whole. He didn't go mad. He didn't die. He didn't become a heretic. Rabbi Akiva was the only one who made it. So Elisha, all the rabbis, disconnected themselves from Elisha. They started calling him Acher, the other one. They refused to even name, name him by his name because he was a heretic. We're not going to study Torah from a heretic. There was one rabbi, one exception, Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir says, I'm strong enough, I can take his inner and I can discard his shell. So he maintained this friendship with him and he continued to study Torah from him because he was unparalleled. His scholarship, his brilliance was unparalleled amongst all the rabbis. And... Um, when Rabbi Meir passed away, he says, I am going to help him to get to the Garden of Eden. How am I going to help him? I'm going to send the soul into hell because like this he can find a purification. So when Rabbi Meir died, this, the grave, his grave, Rabbi Elisha's grave, the smoke started coming out from Elisha's grave. This went on until the age of Rabbi Yochanan. Many, many, few generations later, Rabbi Yechonah says, ha, this is a kunz. This is, a, this is what's the big thing? To send, send your rabbi to, to hell? <laughs> I know many people would like to, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but is, this, is this what you've accomplished? You've sent your rabbi to hell? When I die, I'm going to take him with me into the Garden of Eden. And when he died, the smoke stopped. When Rabbi Yechonah died, the smoke over Rabbi Elisha uh, ben Avuya's uh, cave stopped, and that was a sign that he, he left hell and he joined, he went to the Garden of Eden. But what was Rabbi Meir thinking? One moment of hell is worse than the most painful things you can imagine. So here Rabbi Meir was ready to send his teacher to hell for over a hundred years. Over a hundred years, not one moment, not a day, not a week, not a month. Over a hundred years, the, the grave was smoking. 
just in order that he should cleanse him from his severe sin, his terrible sin, in order that he should be able to go into the Garden of Eden. It's always all worthwhile just to be able to experience one moment in the Garden of Eden. Imagine the pleasure of the Garden of Eden. That's what the Talmud says, that one moment of pleasure in the Garden of Eden is worth more than all the pleasures of the world put together. If you lived like King Solomon, you lived for a thousand years and you were able to indulge in every pleasure under the sun, it's nothing in comparison to the pure ecstasy and the pure pleasure that the soul experiences in the Garden of Eden. And yet, the same Mishnah says, in the same breath, that one moment of Torah and mitzvot in this world is worth more than all the Garden of Eden put together. Why? Because the mitzvah itself is the divine, is infinite. It becomes part of the divine. The Garden of Eden couldn't handle the mitzvah. Because a mitzvah is infinite. It would completely nullify and destroy the Garden of Eden. They couldn't handle it. A, a being, an entity, even a spiritual soul, a sublime soul, cannot handle the infinite light. It's like could your eyes see the see the, it's blinded by, by the light. You have to shield your eye to look at the sun. The, the, an entity can't handle looking directly, gazing directly at the infinite. It's impossible. You'll be completely nullified. It's only a ray, a glimmer of a ray of the infinite light that you're able to handle. So the mitzvah itself is the source, is the infinite light. That's why in the mitzvah, where do you have the mitzvah in this world? One moment of mitzvot in this world is worth more than all the pleasures the Garden of Eden put together. Because when you do a mitzvah, you're touching the divine, you're touching the infinite, God's essence. But what's the reward for doing a mitzvah? The mitzvah generates, this infinite light generates a glimmer, a ray, which provides you for pleasure, eternal pleasure. For the rest of your life in the Garden of Eden, as long as the soul, till Mashiach comes, as long as the soul is in the Garden of Eden, this mitzvah will generate. Every time you're doing a mitzvah, you're generating this infinite light, which only a glimmer and a ray of this light could provide so much pleasure. So much pleasure that's worth more than all the purgatory put together. That, that's so indescribable that it's worthwhile to go through a hundred years of hell just to experience one moment in the Garden of Eden. And all of this is just a, ri- a glimmer of a ray a ray of a glimmer of the infinite light of the mitzvah itself. So it's the mitzvah that generates the reward. But in this world, we're not in the position to enjoy the mitzvah. We don't even appreciate the mitzvah. We do the mitzvah and we feel, oh, I have to do the mitzvah. <laughs> you imagine the soul in heaven, Nebuch, you have to do a mitzvah. You realize what you have in your hand. What you have is worth I just read there were two, it was a rabbi who had a, gr- a great following. He had a great following. And his colleague, his friend, his best friend, complained to him. He says, you know, I don't get it. You and I, we were best friends. We grew up together. We studied together. I'm, I'm, I'm just as a scholar as you are. I'm just as a mystic as you are. It, nobody follows me. You have such a great following. He says, why? So his friend asked him, the rabbi asked him, tell me, what was the most unbelievable, pleasurable experience you ever had in your life. He said, Rebbe, one time, unexpectedly, I made a hundred thousand ruble. It was like a, a business deal, came out of the blue, and I made so much money, I never made so much money in my life. The Rebbe says, you want to know what my greatest pleasure is? 
when I wake up in the morning and I'm about to put on tefillin, I haven't put on the tefillin yet, and I realize what I'm about to do, that I'm about to do God's will, and I'm about to bind my heart and my, my mind to Hashem. Trust me. The pleasure that you had from your $100,000, my pleasure is 10,000 times greater. You can't even imagine the pleasure, how much I anticipate to do the mitzvah. When the friend heard this, he started crying. He says, now I know why everyone is coming to you and no one is coming to me. <laughs> and he became his chassid. His best friend became, he made him, you're my rabbi. Could you imagine appreciating a mitzvah? Realizing the gift, the treasure of a mitzvah? But we don't. Why? Because we're physical, earthy beings. Because we hunger for materialism. We don't appreciate godly things. But when the soul leaves the body after 120 years, the soul is no longer encumbered by the body. You're no longer going out to Chinese restaurants, <laughs> even if they're glad kosher. And the neshama is pure, the neshama is sublime. Now the neshama could start appreciating and realizing what a mitzvah, all the mitzvah that it did in its lifetime. It realizes what it did and what it accomplished and what a mitzvah is. How infinite, how godly it is, how, how spiritual it is. And it's enough, there's enough there to keep the neshama busy for thousands of years until Mashiach comes, until the resurrection of the dead. Because it's all, and all of that is just a, 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 a glimmer, a ray of a glimmer of the mitzvah itself. So the mitzvah is so much more powerful. But the reward you can only achieve after 120 years. But there is a difference when you, even in this world, how you do the mitzvah. You can't just do the mitzvah coldly and mechanically, even though the mitzvah itself is divine. You have to do the mitzvah with a feeling. You have to feel the godliness of the mitzvah. You have to appreciate that you're about to do something godly. You have to do the mitzvah with intent. You have to approach the mitzvah with a godly feeling. Then that's the energy that elevates the mitzvah and elevates it to the higher world. And then you can nash from that mitzvah and that will be your reward after 120 years. But if you do the mitzvah and it's cold-bloodedly and mechanically, soullessly, then the mitzvot, the mitzvot are flat. The mitzvot don't go anywhere. The mitzvot are trapped. They're not elevated and they don't elevate you. Okay, but now he's going to discuss a new type, a different type of reward. There is a special service of Hashem in this world by special souls, like the soul of Moses and Moshe. Their souls are from the world of Atzilut, from the divine world. Even while they were in this world, they were souls of the world of Atzilut, the world of emanation. They were head and shoulders above even the souls of the righteous ones, of the perfect tzaddik, who reside in the world of creation or in the higher garden of Eden, these are souls that are connected to the world of emanation, the divine world. How does a soul, how is a soul able to become absorbed and be part of this world? So this is a different type of service. Because till now we learned the service of Hashem that's motivated, you do the mitzvot, and the mitzvot are motivated by a love for God an emotional, instinctual love for God. The higher level is a service of God that's motivated by a deep, penetrating understanding of God. 
But then there's even a deeper level. It's not just your intellect. It's your whole being. Every fiber of your being, every bone in your body. Where you're completely unselfconscious. Where you become inseparable from God. Because when you understand God, when you understand something, you're still separate from it. You're detached, you're objective, and you understand it. You understand it well, you understand it deeply, thoroughly. But you and, the, you and your understanding are two separate things. The world of Atsilas is a world of unity, where you are completely unified. You don't, there's no subjective, there's no objective. You become completely... In other words, the world of Atsilas is the world of experience where you experience godliness. There's one thing when you love godliness. There's another thing when you understand godliness. But then there's another level where you experience godliness, where you become unified with godliness. That's a mystical experience. It's a different experience. You become one. You become inseparable. It's innate. It's inherent. It's, 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 it's natural. It's like two halves that, just, that are naturally one. It's not two separate things. They're naturally one. They become one with, with your whole being. And therefore, there's no separation. There's no subjective and objective. The whole split dichotomy between subjective and objective is if you're detached, if you're apart. So you, you're objective, and there's the subject, and then there's the object. But once you experience something, like you experience your own life, it's you. You and your experience are one. There's no separation. It's not something external. It's something that comes from within. It's something that comes from your kishka. something that comes from within. It's your whole being. That's the world that's totally beyond the ego. There is no ego. That's a world where it's completely unselfconscious. You know, we all have that experience occasionally. Where sometimes you get so absorbed in a project. When you're at a peak moment. When you're lost and absorbed in your project that you lose any sense of time. You lose any sense of self. Hours can go by, and suddenly, it's, it's like you wake up from a trance. Wow, it's 8 o'clock. Last time I looked, it was 4. You forgot about yourself. You forgot about time. You've even, for, you even forgot where you are. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe told once in an experience with his father. He used to travel a lot in Europe. He said, and his father stood by the window, they checked into the hotel, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he put his, his foot, I think, on the stool, and he was leaning and thinking, and he got totally lost in thought. It was like in a trance. The previous Rebbe says, hours later, his father was still, hasn't budged, hasn't moved, was in the same position, like lost in thought. Hours later, suddenly, like his father, like, wakes up. I mean, like, and he starts talking to the previous Rebbe. He starts asking questions. He says, you can tell from the questions, the son writes, the previous Rebbe writes, you can tell from my father's questions that he had no idea where he was. He was trying to get from me, like, where are we? <laughs> you know, for a second, he was in Lubavitch. What time is it? What day is it? Where are we? He was completely in a different world. So we all have that experience where time stands still, there is no sense of time. There is no sense of I. There is no sense of ego. Because don't forget, time and space are created. 
time and space are not absolute. As Einstein said, time and time is relative. Time and space is relative to the ego. The more egotistical you are, the more prominent time, the more time slows down, the more prominent space becomes. The more spiritual you are, the less egotistical you are, time is a lot quicker. Time is not so rigid. Space is not so fixed. When there's no ego, when there's no separation, when you become completely one, when you experience something and you become completely absorbed and inseparable, the subject, the object, you become the object. There's no separation between you and the object. You experience it, you become it, it becomes you. You don't know if you're seeing it or it's seeing you. If you become completely one and inseparable, on that level, there's no ego, there's no time, and there's no space. That's the world of unity. That's the world of Atsilas, the world that's divine, the divine world. There's no ego, there's no creation, there's no separation. All there is is God. There's no time, there's no space. All there is is completely unified, the world of unity. So there are those souls that they experience godliness. To them, godliness is not just an intellectual concept or not just an emotional, intense emotional experience. To them, they become they completely unselfconscious. They become complete, like in a trance. They become completely unified with God, inseparable with God. To them, godliness is an experience, a total experience, with every fiber of their being, every bone in their body. A soul who's on that level, this is one or two in every generation. The soul of Moses, the soul of the Rebbe, the soul of the Baal Shem Tov, the soul of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. When you're talking about such a soul, even when he's in this world, he's on that, that level, he's living on that level. So the reward for his mitzvah, when he does a mitzvah on that level, that he experiences godliness, the reward of his mitzvah is his Torah mitzvah are elevated all the way to the world of emanation, the world of atzilus, Not the world of creation, not the world of formation, but to the divine world of, of emanation. So there is such a level of why is the Alter Rebbe telling us about this? This is, seems to be so remote from us, so far removed from us. So firstly, everyone likes to think that they have a little tzaddik of themselves, <laughs> a little of a tzaddik in themselves, at least occasionally, right? Occasionally we all, when we're inspired, when we're on Yom Kippur, on Shabbat, there are moments, Shalashudas, I don't know, there are moments you feel. Raiva the Raiva, it was the holiest time of Shabbos. Not just to get filled the fish and the herring. It's uh, <laughs> this was the ultimate, the ultimate, uh, ultimate time of Shabbos, the highest level. Um, so a person feels that you're, you're. But it's important for us to know that that different levels of kavan, the different levels that we invest in the mitzvah, and based on when we invest in the mitzvah, that's where the mitzvah goes. That's where the mitzvah soars. The deeper the kavana we invest, the higher the level of the kavana the more, in other words, our personal subjective input, not just objectively doing the mitzvah, that's the body, that's the corpse of the mitzvah, but you need the soul of the mitzvah, the personal subjective, what you personally invest in the mitzvah makes all the difference. If you personally invest in the mitzvah your emotion, your instinctual emotion, then the mitzvah will soar and elevate to the world of formation. If you personally invest your mind and your brains and your mind into the mitzvah, you go deeper into the mitzvah, then the mitzvah will be elevated to the world of, of creation. But when you invest your whole being into the mitzvah, 
you experience and you become like innate with God and you become like one with godliness, inseparable from godliness. And it becomes unself-conscious and you don't know where you end and godliness begins or vice versa. Then you elevate the mitzvah to the highest level, the world of emanation, the world of Attila. Page 545, yeah, the world of Attila. The world of Attila is beyond the intelligent grasp and understanding of a created being intellect. Even a spiritual being in the world of Bria is after all a created being, and Atzilut is beyond its grasp as well. For the Chochmah, Bina, and that of the Ein Sof are united with him there, in Atzilut, in perfect unity, in a profound and wonderful unity, infinitely superior to that unity found in Bria. For there they descend to illuminate only to a restricted, contracted degree. The Chabad of Atzilut refers to here as Chabad of Ensof, radiating Bria only after their light is contracted, so as to enable the intellect of created being, namely the angels and souls of Bria, to receive Chabad, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge from this Firot of Atzilut, so that they might know Hashem, and so that they might grasp and comprehend something of the Ensof light to the extent that the intellect of finite, limited, created being is capable of understanding. To achieve this purpose, a constriction of Chabad of Atzilut was necessary. Lest they, the created being of Bria, dissolve out of existence, and lest they furthermore cease altogether to exist as created being, uh, reverting instead to their source and root, namely godliness itself. In the world of creation, the world of creation is a created world even though it's the first of the worlds and that world is the world with the intellect which has such clarity there's such brilliance and such clarity and such illumination such depth of understanding but in order to achieve that it could only go about through a symptom, a contraction because by definition when you understand something you're not it there's a separation between you and what you understand you're detached, you're objective, and you're understanding something that's outside of you. So even if you have a deep understanding, and as a result of your understanding, like, like we discussed earlier, you're like a fish in water. The fish is swallowed up in its source. So even though you have such a deep understanding, you understand that God is constantly creating you, and that the truth is that the, you're not really truly separate from God. But as deep as your understanding is, the fish in the water are two separate beings. It lives in its source, and it breathes its source, and it is, but it's not one and the same with its source. It's swallowed up. It's covered up. There's no ego. There's no separation. That's why the world of creation is egoless. It's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's only a potential for ego. It's the beginning of creation. It's like the, uh, the atomic level. It's, but nevertheless, it's the beginning of creation. Because intellect, by definition, means that there's a separation. So were the Chabad, the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of the world of emanation, were it to illuminate the world of Bria, it would completely nullify because the world of emanation is completely unified. And there's no comparison between the unification of the world of emanation and the intellect, even the intellect of Maimonides, even the intellect of the higher angels, even the intellect of the great souls who reside in the Garden of Eden, in the highest level of the Garden of Eden. That's the world of intellect pure understanding, deep understanding, but that's not God. Because when you, pure experience is beyond intellect. It's way beyond, infinite times greater than intellect. Intellect is, is separation by its very definition. 
And God wanted to create a world of separation. So he had to contract himself. He had to hide and conceal himself like through a screen. The light had to go through a screen and therefore the light became separated from God and that enabled the world of Atsilus. Like when you send the light through the screen, a thick screen. So when the light, the light itself is connected to its source, to the sun. But the light from the screen, you don't see its connection. You don't see its source. All you see is a light. So the light has already been dimmed, been screened, been like divorced, disconnected from its source. So to create this world of understanding, of comprehension, of deep understanding, of, of, of illumination, of clarity, this brilliant world is already a separation. It's through a symptom. It has to be screened. So this deep understanding of godliness is already a separation. It's not godliness. So the world of Atzilut cannot, cannot illuminate the world of Bria without a screen. Because then it would be completely nullified. Then there wouldn't be any separate entity. God wanted there should be a separate entity. Where the Chabad of Atzilut is to shine forth in Bria without being contracted, allowing the creatures of Bria to grasp godliness as it is, radiates in the spheres of Atzilut, these creatures would be overwhelmed by the godly illumination beyond their capacity to absorb and would dissolve out of existence. Hence, the Alter Rebbe now will continue. It is only the godliness in a contracted Chabad that creatures of Bria can grasp and absorb, and even then only to the extent of their limited capacity. The light of Chabad in its pristine state, as in Atzillus, is far beyond them. This contraction, which Chabad of Atzillus undergo in order to radiate in Bria, thus causes the soul in the world of Bria to be illuminated by a glow of Chabad of Einsof, meaning Chabad of Atzillus. It is this contraction that enables them to have some perception of the Einsof light. The created intellectual being of Bria cannot, however, apprehend Chabad as they are, meaning in all their undimmed intensity in the world of Atzillus, where the Chabad are not contracted to such a great degree as in Bria. To such a degree, for the very fact of the being spheros, meaning individual defined categories, indicates that Chabad are merely contracted, limited manifestations of undefinable Einso. The degree of contraction, however, is much less than the Bria, and therefore, the creatures of Bria cannot receive intellectual illumination from Chabad of Atzilus. Because the truth is, even in Atzilus itself, Chabad, by definition, is also through a contraction. Because God himself, his infinite light, is not only infinite, it's undefined. So to call God wise is already an impossibility. It's not enough that God's wisdom is infinite. God is not only infinite, he's undefined. How can you define him as wise, as brilliant, as loving, as compassionate, as strong. God is undefined. So any of the ten spherot, all of these ten spherot are already a limitation. So God had to contract himself in order to emanate from within himself these attributes of wisdom, of brilliance, of understanding, of, of love, of, of strength, compassion. So it's already a contraction. But nevertheless, it's not the same contraction as the Chabad in the world of Bria. So the Chabad of the world of Bria is, is intellect. Intellect, the highest level of intellect, the, the deepest intellect, the most mind-boggling, the intellect of King Solomon, the deepest intellect is, is limited. The deepest intellect 
is external, is separate, separate versus the intellect of the world of Atsilas is like defining the undefined. It's all the world of unity. It's one with the infinite and it emanates from the infinite and it remains unified within the infinite. So it's like defining the undefined. That's, that's pure experience. That's totally beyond our comprehension. Versus the, the understanding of the world of Bria, even though it's the highest level of understanding. It says the mind of an angel even is one-third of this world. Take all the brilliant, all the minds of this world and put them together. The mind of one angel is the equivalent of the, not only the greatest angels, it's the equivalent of all the brilliance of a third of this world. So, you know, we can't even imagine brilliance. There's brilliance on top of brilliance on top of brilliance. So even the deepest brilliance, the most penetrating understanding, the deepest understanding, it's still limited. It's still external. It's still, by definition, there, there's, there's two separate entities. You understand something outside of you. That's the world of Bria. So it's, that's, what it, that's what he means when he says that it's, much, it's a much greater contraction. In order to, to create this level of comprehension, there's a much greater contraction than the contraction of the world of emanation. To generate the, the divine spherot, the divine emanations in the world of Atsilas. That also came about through a contraction, because God himself is undefined. But that contraction is not as prominent, because that wisdom, understanding, and knowledge that emanates from God remains unified within God, versus the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge in the world of Berea is separate from God. As brilliant as it is, and as swallowed up as it is in its source, like a fish in water, but it's separate. The fish is fish, and water is water. Two separate entities. Versus the wisdom and understanding and knowledge in the world of emanation, it's God's wisdom. It's God's understanding. Even though God is undefined, but God emanated from within himself, and he contracted himself and channeled himself, and he emanated from within himself, it's God's wisdom. So it's defining the undefined. And that's pure experience. What does it mean, the Hashem contracts? Like it says, it says the Holy of Holies, God concentrated himself and revealed himself. When he spoke to Moshe, he spoke to him through the Holy of Holies. He contracted himself and, and he, he was able to, he communicated and he revealed himself through the poles of the Holy of Holies. So in other words, it's not a limitation. It's not that he's, he's limiting himself. There's a difference between, he's concentrating himself. Like he concentrate the whole thing, like concentrated, it's intense. So the whole thing is concentrated in this little capsule. There's a different limitation means I'm cutting out. Concentration means how can God's infinite self, God is infinite, how can he concentrate himself in this little space? God is infinite, God could do anything. So God has the ability to concentrate, to emanate within himself wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, love, and it's godly and it's divine. That's God's ability. But he concentrated himself. So it's God. It's he himself. There's no separation. Versus when there's another type of concentration, another type of symptom, which is not just concentration, but like you're cutting out. It's not the same. Like when the light goes through that thick screen, the light that's coming out is almost, it's disconnected. It's not the same. It's not the same light. It's disconnected. So what you're getting, the end result of that contraction, in the world of Bria, you're getting a different reality, a different entity. You're getting pure brilliance, pure understanding, but it's already a separate entity. It's not pure experience. It's not experiential. It's not pure experience. It's not unified. There's already an ego, the beginning of ego, the beginning of separation, versus pure experience. 
is egoless. But that's totally beyond our, our, our ability because we are egotistical beings. We cannot experience pure divine, pure infinite, or pure experience. By also, everything is ego. That's what he says, that the world of Berea is already a separate entity. It's a different type of contraction. Okay, continue. Therefore, their thought... Therefore, their thought cannot grasp there at all, which means the thought and intellect of the created beings of Berea can in no way grasp the light radiating in Atsilu. So we're not equipped. The highest souls, the highest angels are not equipped to grasp the infinite. With your mind, you can't grasp the infinite with your mind. As brilliant as you are, as deep as you are, as crystal clear as you are, you don't have the capacity to grasp the infinite. Something that's beyond ego, because it's totally beyond you. You don't have the tools. The mind is too limited to grasp, intellectually, to grasp the infinite. What about the soul? says, but the exception is for this reason. For this reason, Atsilut is the abode of the great Sadiqim, whose service of God is far superior even to fear and love derived from understanding and knowing his greatness. Just as Atsilut transcends by far the level of understanding and knowledge of a great being intellect, their service is rather on the level of an actual chariot of the blessed Aizov, nullifying their very existence before him and incorporating themselves and all that they possess within his life through the observance of the Torah and the Mitzvah. Our sages <coughs> apply such a description to the patriarch, saying that they themselves constitute the divine chariot for this was the patriarch level of service throughout their lives. The patriarch was constantly in that state of self-nullification before God, denoted by the term chariot. Similarly, in the case of the king spoken of here, through their Torah and its word, they effect the highest degree of self-nullification before God in themselves and in the, all their affairs. The abode of their soul, therefore, is likewise in a world pervaded this spirit of self-nullification, namely the world of Atsilu. So the rabbis refer to the patriarchs as the chariots of God. It says God spoke to the patriarchs and then he lifted himself up above them as if he was sitting in them as if they were his chariot. Just like a chariot. The chariot is completely nullified before its rider. It has no will of its own. It has no ego. The char- you don't have to argue with your chariot or modern day with your car. You want to go here, and the car says, you know, I want to turn left. No, but I'm the boss. I say right. And the chariot is religious, and it obeys. The chariot does whatever you want. There's no ego. There's no agenda. The patriarchs were like chariots to God. There were no ego. They were completely egoless. They had no personal agendas. Religion means I have a personal agenda. I have my own life, my own private, personal, individual life, my own agendas. But I know that God is the omniscient, the omnipotent. God is the big boss. And I better listen to the big boss. 
If I know what's smart, I better listen to it. I know where my bread is buttered. I know who gives me life, who gives me success. So what, I'm going to argue with the big guy, with God? It's ridiculous. Even Bilaam says, how can I argue with God? If God is going to command me and order me to do something, how can I go against him? I know where, where uh, my life comes from. That's religion. The patriarchs were chariots. There was no ego. Their whole being was godly. There was nothing else. 24-7, when they slept, when they were awake, every waking moment, every conscious moment, even when they were asleep, their whole being was constantly focused and concentrated on godliness, just to express godliness. There was nothing else. And the great tzaddikim, after the giving of the Torah, fulfilled the Torah and mitzvot on the same level. Like we discussed earlier, it's like the, the analogy of the world of emanation. It's like the analogy that's given is like, the, is like a body and a soul, the connection of the body and the soul. The body doesn't either have religion. The body is even more than a chariot. The body is one with the soul. When you decide to move your hand, the hand moves. Do you have to argue with your hand? Do you have to lift your hand? Is, is, does the hand, is the hand religious? Are you going to thank the hand for listening? It goes, what do you mean? The hand, the hand is nothing. There's no ego. You don't even feel yourself. A healthy person is completely unselfconscious. If you're self-conscious, we'll take you to Lenox Hill. Are you a healthy person? You don't even feel yourself. Completely unself-conscious. Your body is the soul. The body becomes one with the soul. Inseparable from the soul. And that's why, as the Zohar says, there are 248 mitzvot. Why? Because there are 248 limbs. So this tzaddik, the highest level of the tzaddik, is one who becomes a body to God. God wants me to move my hand, and I move my hand. God expresses His will in the Torah, and every fiber of my being and every bone of my body is just here to express God. This tzaddik is egoless. There's no ego. There's no self-consciousness. I'm one with God. This tzaddik is completely one with God. His whole being is just to express God. He's inseparable from God. You don't know where He ends, where God begins. It's completely one and completely nullified, like a chariot. So this is beyond intellect. This is not just an intellectual experience. I have an intellectual experience with my Jewishness. Judaism is not just an intellectual experience. It's not just emotional experience. It's, it's my whole being. It's a completely unselfconscious experience. I become completely egoless. I become completely unified with God, inseparable from God. My whole being becomes godly. I become like a half. The body and the soul become like two halves. They're they're inseparable. They're one and the same. The intellect is attached to God. It's like taking two entities and tying them together. So my mind, I'm attaching my mind to God. I'm taking my mind and I'm attaching it to God. I, I understand God. I appreciate God. But again, it's two separate entities that you're tying together. But here we're talking about something much deeper. Something that comes from the soul. It's not just my mind is attached to God. My being is inseparable from God. It's a completely egoless experience. I am completely one with God. From the inside. It's something that comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. And therefore there's no ego, there's no separation. So when you approach God intellectually, your mind cannot grasp God, it's impossible. But the world of Atsilas, they experience God, they become inseparable with God, completely egoless before God, then you become one with God. 
And therefore, the souls of these tzaddikim, where do they reside? In the world of emanation. So true, there's also souls. They're not the ten svirot. They're not God himself. But they reside in the world of Atzilus. In the world of unity. So they are as unified as possible. As unified as a soul can possibly be with God. This was the level of Moshe. This was the level of the patriarchs. This was the level of the Bashemta. This was the level of the author of the Tanya. This was the level of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. It's a different dimension. It's a different level. Where godliness is, it's, it's your whole being. There's no separation. Completely one with God. 24-7. Not just on a holy day and a holy moment. But when they ate and when they drank and when they slept and when they did business and when they spoke, whatever they did, it was the whole being, the whole essence. Completely inseparable from God. Completely egoless. Aware of God, conscious of God, constantly, 24-7. And not just intellectually aware of God, but much deeper than just the intellect. With their whole, with their kishkis, the whole being was one with God. Completely egoless, unselfconscious. So this is, this is their world. Not only in this world. When they were living in this world, they were a chariot. So how much more so after 120 years, where did their soul go? Their soul goes to the world of Attilus, the world of emanation. But he and his soul's root is of two limited capacity for this perfect service on the level of the chariot, so that through his service of Torah and its both, he be constantly nullified before and absorbed in God's within us. If there's one Jew like Abraham, we all have a little Abraham inside of us. We all have a little spark of Moshe inside of us. What was the nickname for the Jew in Eastern Europe? I don't know what it was in the Sparta countries, but in Eastern Europe, the nickname for every Jew was Mashka. Mashka, like, like Moses. Because every Jew is a little Mashka, every Jew is a little Moses. Whether he knows it or not, whether he's aware of it or not, every Jew has a little spark of Moses inside of him. The non-Jew knows it, the truth. Every Jew is Moshka, he's Moses, a little, a little Moses. He's a big Moses, a little Moses. Because if there's one Moses, then we all have that spark. We all have that spark. Please help us. What? Please help us elevate. This will help us, exactly. But knowing, knowing that we have it inside of us, knowing that when we see them, we see it inside of us. So we have that, we have that potential. That's why we know that also Mashiach, that how, do, how do we know that inevitably Mashiach is going to come? Because if there's one Jew like Abraham and Sarah, one perfect Jew, then we know that inevitably it's like the fashions, right? The fashions in Paris, 20 years later, it makes its way to America, and 50 years later, it makes its way to Australia. You know, eventually, eventually it's going to reach everywhere. It takes time. So there's the cutting edge. So Abraham was the cutting edge. He was the most advanced human being. He was the cutting edge. Moses, Moses was the most advanced human being. But inevitably, we're all going to catch up. So, it's, it, so it took us 3,800 years. But there's no question. If there's one person like that, that means we all have that potential. Mashiach will come. We're all going to be on that level. That's what it says. When Mashiach will come, everyone will be elevated one level. Because, you know, everyone will go, will go up one level. Because eventually it trickles down. Eventually 
the potential is there, and so it'll take its time. But it, eventually it reaches everyone. So we can achieve this occasionally. And that, that should be our aspiration. At least we should aspire to it. At least we know that something like this exists. At least we know to have respect for a tzaddik. People talk about tzaddikim, and they have no idea what they're talking about. They talk about the tzaddik, and they, make, and they mix everything up together. My rabbi, the tzaddik. My rabbi, the tzaddik, with all due respect. How could you compare my rabbi to a real tzaddik? I mean, come on. You're demeaning. It's, it's like talking about your physics teacher in third grade and comparing him to Einstein. <laughs> my, my teacher... You know, you have to know a third grade teacher is a third grade teacher, and Einstein is Einstein. Yeah, don't mix the two together. When people start mixing the Lubavitcher Rebbe with my rabbi and my Rosh Hashiva, I mean, you know, you're dealing with Einstein and you're dealing you're dealing with a first grade teacher. I mean, you know, you have to, when people when everyone becomes a tzaddik, oh, he's such a tzaddik. Why he goes to shul three times a day, he studies Torah. That's a tzaddik. Do you have any clue what a tzaddik is? You know what a tzaddik is? You're demeaning the whole, the whole currency. You know what a tzaddik is? One or two in every generation. You have to realize what we're talking about here. You know who Moses was? Moses sinned. So me, so me, me and Moses have something in common. We both sinned. <laughs> so I'm already half of Moses. Moses sinned. King David sinned. Do you have any idea who King David was? Do you have any idea? As the Talmud says, anyone who says King David sinned is a fool. Do you have any idea who King David was? Do you have any idea who Moses was? Moses' sin was scratching our head. We can't figure out what exactly what his sin was. From his sins, the Torah was written. No one's writing any, any Torah from our mitzvot. I mean, who are we dealing with here? You have to know. You have to put everything into perspective. You're dealing with a giant of a person, a person who's head and shoulders, a soul of the world of Atzillus. A soul that's head and shoulders above the highest souls, the highest angels and the highest souls of the highest levels of the Garden of Eden that's beyond the world of creation or soul from the world of emanation. Moses sinned. You have, you have any idea who we're talking about? You have to put things in perspective. You're dealing with a Baal Shem Tov. You're putting in the same league a Baal Shem Tov. Am I, am I rabbi? <laughs> am I Rosh Hashim? I mean, so it's important for us to know we have to have some clarity here. We have to have some appreciation. If no, Einstein is Einstein. Don't confuse the first grade physics teacher with Einstein. <laughs> you know, don't, don't put them on the same level. Oh, everyone is a tzaddik. Don't demean the terminology. We're not doing anyone, anyone any favors. And it's not so innocent. It's not so harmless. Oh, what do I care? I call everyone a tzaddik. If you call everyone a tzaddik, you appreciate nothing and you appreciate nobody. And you have no clue what you're talking about. You're not, you're not doing anyone any favors. You're not doing anyone any kindness. You have to define things. You have to know what a genuine greatness is. When you know what genuine greatness is, then you can aspire to something. Then you know what to aspire to. Then you know what's real in life. So it's very important for us to know this, to know. And occasionally, we can aspire to, and occasionally we can even get a glimpse of this level. Continue when? Therefore, attain this state only intermittently and only at times with divine favor on high, such as during the Shemona Esrei prayer, which is at the level of Atsilu. The four rungs in the ladder of prayer corresponds to the four worlds. The prayer preceding Baruch, She'amar, corresponds to Asiya, the Psalms of Praise to Yitzira, the Shema to Beria, 
the Shmona X-rays at the level of Atsiri. Right, so the dream, Jacob's dream, and the ladder in his dream, the ladder, this is the ladder of prayer. When a Jew prays, you're climbing the ladder. The ladder is firmly planted on the earth, and you're climbing to heaven. Through prayer, we climb through heaven. This ladder was made up of four rungs. The first level, till Baruch Amar, is a world of action. That's why we, the emphasis is on thanking Hashem, Hoidu. It's very external, but we're thanking Hashem, we're acknowledging Hashem. Then the next level, from Baruch Amar to Yishtabach, we climb the ladder, a higher level of consciousness. We move on to the world of emotions. We praise God, all the halalukas, all the praises. We, we, we see God's hand in history. We talk about Jewish history. You see how God runs this world. You see the greatness of God and all the creatures that he created. And the, and the, so that's the next level. It's very emotional. You talk about the greatness of God. You start getting excited about godliness. After Baruch Hu, from uh, after Baruch Hu, Tilshman Esrei, the Shema, we, we talk about the world of creation. We reach the higher level, intellect, the world of intellect. Shema Yisrael, think. Meditate, focus, concentrate. You talk about understanding the greatness of God, Kaddish, how God is transcendent. You talk about the angels constantly praising God. So this is already a deeper understanding. And then that's all a preparation for the climax of the prayer, which is the Shmonesa, the silent prayer. That's why it's called silent. Because when you enter into the presence of the king, it silences. You're completely nullified. You become completely unselfconscious. There's no ego. When you're standing in the presence of greatness, when you will pass by before the king, you become completely nullified. When you're outside, you can praise the king, you can glorify the king, you can understand the king, but once you're standing right in front of the king, you lose yourself completely, you become completely unselfconscious, and you're silenced. You have nothing to say. You, st- you stand like a stone. When you're standing in front of Hashem, you have to beg Hashem, please, Hashem, open my mouth. I can't even open my mouth because I'm in awe. I'm standing right in front of you. That's the highest level. That's the level of Atzilus the world of emanation, where you become completely nullified before God. Okay, and especially... And especially when bowing in the four designated places in this prayer, every such act of bowing represents the level of Atsilus, as is written in pre-Eitz Chaim, in the section dealing with the welcoming of the Sabbath. When we bow externally, it's a reflection of what we feel inside, what we're experiencing inside. Bowing means you're completely nullified before God. You're bowing your, your, yourself before God. It means you're completely humbling yourself before God. You're bowing your brain, your mind. Because you're going beyond your mind. You're transcending even your mind. It's not even I understand God, I grasp God. It's beyond understanding. It's beyond grasping. It's you experience God. When you experience God and you experience standing right before God, you bow your head. You're completely nullified before God. And when the king would pray, the high priest bows at every blessing. And then he stands up. The king, says when the king prays, he bows at the beginning and he remains bowed for the whole prayer. Because it's a reflection of what they experience inside. The high priest was on a very high spiritual level. He experiences this level more frequently. That's why every blessing he can bow. We only bow twice at the beginning and twice at the end. The king is so completely nullified before God that when he bows, he remains bowed for the whole prayer. Because he's completely egoless. That's why he's king. That's why he has the honor. Only someone who's egoless, who runs away from honor, is the one who is honored. 
the one who's completely egoless, completely nullified before God. So the idea of bowing, when we bow, that's when we completely nullify ourselves before God. Continue, for it embodies. For it embodies the idea of self-nullification in God's lane to be counted as absolutely naught before him. In the case of he who can attain the level of a chariot only at the proprietor's times, then even at these times the principal abode of his soul is in the world of Berea. For we are dealing here with a soul associated with the world of Berea. And only occasionally, at a time of divine favor, will his soul rise to Atsilat as feminine waters, as is known to the initiates of Kabbalah. Primarily, the souls reside in the world of creation, but it's only in certain times when God is smiling, so to speak, when it's the time of divine favor, when the king opens himself up and he allows, then he allows the souls to rise to the world of Atsilat. And um, then they can experience, get a taste, a glimpse of this higher reality, of this divine reality, of this complete egolessness, a taste of egolessness, a taste of complete self-nullification. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. But he says, every day you have a little of it, a taste of it, when on Shmoneser, the silent prayer, especially when you bow down. How much more so on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, on Shabbat, how much more so Yom Kippur, how much more so when you pray on Yom Kippur, um, and when you bow down on Yom Kippur, that's why we bow down. Shani Yom Kippur, we bow down. We don't bow down a whole year. Shani Yom Kippur, we're constantly bowing down. Because that day is so holy that we're expressing externally what we're experiencing inside. Yes, 100%. Very good. But this is only temporarily. This is like a little glimpse, a little upgrade. But, but permanently, primarily our abode, the soul resides. We live in the world of intellect. Or, on a lower level, the world of emotions. Only the tzaddik, the chariot, one or two in every generation, they permanently reside. 24-7, they permanently reside on this level of egolessness, of complete nullification before God. That's holy. That's very special. That's, 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 very, that's very rare. Even amongst the holier souls, this is something extremely, extremely rare. This is a very holy soul. The soul of the Baal Shem Tov. The soul of the Arachayim HaKadosh. Soul of a Rebbe. This is a different level. The soul of Moses, the soul of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the soul of King David, Joseph. You're dealing with a different level, different dimension. That's why Joseph was even superior to his brothers, because his soul was in the world of the world of emanation. The brothers were from the world of formation. That's why they were jealous of him. They couldn't understand him. They couldn't relate to him. They didn't understand him. You know, their mind they couldn't grasp. That's why he was able to be king of the world. And yet he remained a tzaddik. To them, it was impossible. To, to serve God, they had to become shepherds. They had to isolate themselves from the world. They couldn't deal with the world. But Joseph could be in the midst, in the metropolitan of Egypt, in the midst of the most modern, the most advanced, and yet be totally godly and righteous because he was completely egoless. It's a different level. They couldn't relate to it. So this is rare. Even in the Torah, this is rare. This is, this is only Joseph, only a Jacob, only Abraham, Sarah, Rivka, Isaac, Rachel, Leah, the matriarchs, the patriarchs. Oh, okay, that's it. <laughs> to be continued. The Rebbe would always remind us 
that we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like ours, and there never will be. We are the transitional generation, the last generation of Golos, of exile, and we will be the first generation of Geula, of redemption. What an awesome privilege we have, and what a sacred responsibility we carry on our shoulders. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring the curtain down on the Golos, once and for all? Well, Mashiach himself gave the secret away in his famous encounter with the Baal Shem Tev. He tells the Baal Shem Tev that when your wellsprings and the teachings of Hasidus will spread to every corner of the world, then and only then will Mashiach come. And therefore the Alter Rebbe sacrificed his life to carry out this directive to the Baal Shem Tev by writing and publishing the Tanya. And all the Rebbe's sacrificed themselves to publicize and to expound on the teachings of the Tanya. And the Rebbe, the seventh, the Shabbos of all the Rebbe's, published over 6,000 Tanyas, literally in every city of the world. And now, for the first time in history, through LessonsInTanya.com, Tanya in depth is available and accessible 24-6 to hundreds of thousands, Jews as well as non-Jews, in dozens of countries all around the world. Now that you've had the personal experience and the pleasure to study the Tanya, we ask you to please partner with us to make the entire Tanya available and easily accessible to each and every Jew and to the entire world. Please help turn the wish of Mashiach, the dream of the Alter Rebbe, and the vision of the Rebbe into a reality. On behalf of all of us here at LessonsInTanya.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. And a special thank you for the good deed that you're about to do. In honor of your tzedakah, we will merit the coming of Mashiach now when we'll learn Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself.